This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Some cars are comfy on the inside but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk Hello and welcome to the Raptors Extra Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Samson Folk, and today I have a very special guest, Ian Levy. He is the senior NBA editor for Fansided, and I've brought him on to talk Kyle Lowry, other pieces he's done that have talked about the impact that big things are going to have on the culture of the NBA, watching as a fan at large, how players are impacted by technology, how technology impacts the game, things of that nature. And, of course, the Raptors series against the Bucks. Ian, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I guess so we'll kick it off straight away. The Raptors, they played the Bucks last night. They tied up the series 2-2. It didn't seem like the Bucks had a very big adjustment to the big adjustments that the Raptors made in Game 3. Talking about Kawhi Leonard on Giannis, Pascal Siakam on Bledsoe, Kyle Lowry on Middleton, things of that nature. What did you like that the Raptors did in Game 4? I mean, obviously, the switching up some of the defensive matchups seemed like it, you know, kind of had a, a chain reaction, sort of uh, set things, um, you know, set things in motion, uh, triggered effects down the line. But um, I, I, I think the, the most visceral difference for the Raptors was obviously the bench, having Serge Ibaka and Van Vliet and, and Norman Powell play well. Um, Powell's, you know, had some, some minutes earlier in the, you know, earlier in the series where he was productive. Um, 
but Van Vliet and Ibaka, you know, have, have just sort of been, been next to nothing. And then, you know, having Lowry and Gasol play well in the starting lineup too, um, you know, like the Raptors have been good enough to kind of get by with everybody else struggling and, and, you know, Leonard just, you know, playing out of his mind. But this is sort of like how the, this is like the game last night is how the team is designed to work. It's designed to have um, Leonard and, and Lowry to some degree um, sort of as those offensive focal points. But, you know, the, the ceiling of this team is when everybody's playing well, is when the supporting cast is, is hitting shots, when multiple players, uh, you know, can attack the defense after it's bent. Um, you know, when Marcus Gasol's you know, pulling opposing bigs, you know, out to the three-point line and, you know, hitting cutters from the elbows and all those sorts of things. And um, it, it felt like this was the first time in a while that we've sort of seen the Raptors the way they're you know supposed to look so if this is how the Raptors are supposed to look and we're seeing that for one of the first times we've seen it in these playoffs obviously the Bucks are responding the same way if you're the Bucks and you see an optimized Raptors club in your mind what is the first thing you go to to stymie them um you know I think the Bucks uh I think the Bucks um you know, I, I don't know that the Bucks would look at this game and think of it as as sort of giant as calling for giant tactical changes or or calling for um, you know lineup tinkering and that kind of stuff. Um, I think I think you could make an argument that it might be time for the Bucks to uh, to to trim their rotation a little bit. Um, you know, they've been getting such fantastic uh, bench minutes earlier in the series that they've been able to kind of stretch things and play a deeper rotation. Um, but, you know, Bledsoe's struggling. They've been so good when when George Hill and, and Malcolm Brogdon are on the floor together, although not as much last night. Uh, you know, Nikola Mirotic's his defense has been an issue. Um, and so it might be time for, for the Bucks to kind of identify those two or three lineups that they feel most strongly about uh, and, and really just lean into those lineups, play as many minutes as they can with those great groups that they feel like they have an advantage with and, and not worry so much about trying to buy rest for everybody here and there with, with different lineups. But, you know, I, I think the, the bucks will also look at this and say, all right, it was on the road. Uh, you know, what are the, uh, given what we've seen from the Raptors in the playoffs, you know, what are the odds that Gasol and Lowry and Van, Van Vliet and Ibaka are going to all play like this on the same night again. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those, those things where, the Bucks, uh, you know, that's how they built this team. And so they've got to feel confident that those guys are going to perform. And, um, you know, I think the Bucks have to feel confident about the track record of those guys together and the track record of their players together. And so, um, yeah, there, I think there might be some smaller adjustments, some smaller, uh, you know, rotation tinkering for the Bucks. But I don't think this, this really uh, calls for any big changes for them. I was surprised specifically that they didn't move away from Mertic in the starting lineup and go to Brogdon, who, like you alluded to, has been very good in this series. I guess you're suggesting that maybe just sticking with a confident approach for the Bucks, trying to maintain winning at home, going into Game 5, making sure that you maintain the home court advantage and that the Raptors don't have an opportunity to close you out in 6. Adversely, the Raptors... If they want to win, if they want to dominate the Bucks in Game 5 and really, really take a big step forward towards going to the NBA Finals, what do you think they have to do? I mean, they have to play with the this sort of energy and effort that they played with uh, 
that they played with in game four. Uh, I mean, they need those bench players to, to be efficient and to hit open shots, but um, they also just sort of looked more aggressive and more involved than they have been in other games in the series. Um, and one of the, one of the things I looked at as I was putting together the recap for the game last night was the, um, the Bucks. If you look at the first three games in the series, they had these enormous advantages um, with their bench scoring, with points in the paint and with fast break points. And that's, you know, those are Milwaukee's strengths that are, those have been their strengths all season long. Uh, everybody knows about the three pointers, but I think that's uh, to a greater degree. That's the foundation of the team is, you know, is depth is Giannis scoring inside, uh, you know, dribble penetration, you know, getting inside, getting shots at the rim um, and then pushing the ball in transition. Um, and so, you know, the, the Bucks had had something like an edge of, of uh, you know, an average of like 17 points per game, uh, you know, in, in bench scoring so far in the series. Um, and they were like, you know, an average of plus 10 per game in, in both points in the paint and fast break points. And um, in game four, the Raptors bench outscored them, the Bucks bench by 15 and essentially played them even in, in fast break points and points in the paint. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think some of that is is strategic stuff and, and, and guys hitting shots, but, you know, points in the paint and um, and fast break points is energy and effort. It's, it's getting back uh, intelligently. It's, you know, um, making sure they've got bodies in front of Giannis. It's making sure they're not losing shooters in transition on cross matches and things like that. And so, um, you know, I, I think the Raptors have have a game plan they want to play. They need guys to hit shots, and then they just sort of, um, you know, they, they need to be on it. They need to be confident. They need, you know, every guy to sort of be uh, active and invested. Right. So now we've laid out the roadmap for both teams, let's say. Let's get a little bit more granular. You wrote a big piece about Kyle Lowry in the playoffs, how he's been affected by it relative to his performances in the regular season. On average, how great a player he is, how great he needs to be going forward. And that was a piece for Nylon Calculus. And you cited DRE as a statistic and showed Lowry's comparative distribution through the regular season and the playoffs. Two questions. What makes DRE a useful statistic in your eyes? What's the utility of it? Mm-hmm. And... You didn't provide an answer, let's say, in your piece for Lowry's game, but more of a call to action. Is there a clear way forward for Lowry to reach his regular season level of impact in the postseason? Um, so, yeah, I'll start with DRE. Uh, it's, I mean, obviously it's not a perfect metric. I don't think there are any perfect metrics out there, but it's built off – uh, regularized adjusted plus minus, which is also uh, called RAPM, um, which is sort of a, an ancestor of real plus minus. It's uh, the that ESPN uses. It's sort of a predecessor to that. So the idea with with real plus minus is you're looking at um, you're looking at lineup statistics and uh, players on and off and, and uh, the impact that certain players have, uh, uh, you know, on their team's net point differential when they're in the game. And you're using some complicated uh, math 
calculations to account for the quality of the competition and to account for um, the other four guys that are on the on the floor. You know, so if if um, Kyle Lowry is only playing minutes with with Kawhi Leonard, he's going to look better. Uh, you know, sort of regardless of how he plays than you know if he's only playing with Norman Powell or whatever it is. So um, our APM has proven to be one of the best uh, out of sample predictors. So um, you know, it's a stat that. Uh, you know, on, on an individual player level, uh, you know, people can quibble with certain things, but by and large, it's been one of the best uh, statistics in terms of projecting who's going to win. Um, and I think that's sort of the the most useful test of an all-in-one metric. So anyway, that's sort of the 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 basis. And then DRE is a related uh, a related stat. It was developed by Kevin Farrigan for Nylon Calculus, and what it does is it uses RAPM, um, and it uh, sort of, uh, I don't want to say this, it, it works it down to a single game level and it builds it on box score statistics. So um, it says, you know, uh, we, we can't calculate RAPM uh, for a single game. We don't have uh, a big enough sample to, to, to do that compu- complicated formula to sort of account for all the other factors, uh, you know, with one game's worth of data. So what we do is we take things like points and rebounds and shot attempts and misses and things like that, and we figure out how those relate to, uh, to a player's RAPM over an entire season, and then we can um, you know, we can convert that down to a single game level. Um, so there's, as far as I know, there's really only uh, DRE and uh, game score, which basketball reference uses. Those are sort of the only other single game uh, metrics and uh, game score is built off all of the same statistics. You know, it's, it's still just uh, box score stuff, points, rebounds, steals, turnovers, things like that. Um, but game score has sort of arbitrary weights. It's just sort of a guess at how much a point is worth or how much a block is worth, whereas um, DRE is trying to estimate how much each of those things are worth based on uh, you know how they affect this other sort of larger global statistic. And it's pretty complicated, but <laughs> at, at the, the, the too long didn't read version is it's a single game metric uh, based on a player's box score stats that's, that's very good at sort of estimating a player's overall impact. Perfect. And like you mentioned in the piece, that's DRE was very, very, I guess, good to Kyle Lowry in the regular season. He performs really well in that metric. He's also, he's decent enough in the playoffs, as has been, you know, the much to the chagrin of Raptors fans, the, the narrative around Kyle Lowry for a long time has been that he doesn't perform in the playoffs. And for the longest time, he has been the most important Raptors performer, and he has been generally the best player on the team. However, comma... He hasn't been performing to the level that he performs in the regular season. So there is still a drop off. Like you noted in your piece, that happens for a lot of players. But for Kyle Lowry, he's operating in a lower percentile than usual. And maybe more so than we see from all-star players. Like, yeah, I think that's one of the things that's sort of hard because I, I didn't run the study um, uh, on every player. But I, I think in general, if you looked at a, a bunch of different players, you would sort of see that pattern. Uh, the playoffs are harder. You're playing against a tougher level of competition. Um 
you know, uh, fewer minutes for bench players. There's sort of all these factors that make the playoffs, uh, you know, a bigger challenge. And so I think in general, uh, you would see a similar trend for everybody. My guess is it's it's less pronounced for, uh, you know, elite star players. Um, but I, I just thought um, it was not necessarily putting Lowry's in, in context and saying this is, you know, much worse than we would expect. I just wanted to sort of illustrate that, like, this is a real thing. This is a real effect. And this is what it looks like. Um, so I don't have the article open, but if I remember correctly, the, the finding was like what constitutes a very good game for Kyle Lowry in the regular season, you know, the kind of game that he has one out of every five games, you know, that sort of a, a very strong game that happens about one out of every seven times in the playoffs. So, you know, he about 50% less often is he hitting this, um, you know, this level of a very strong level of performance that he does often in the regular season. Um, and so I also was trying to, um, I was trying to avoid assigning it to any specific, uh, reason because I think I, I think to some degree it's unfair to Lowry that this decline is usually assigned to some sort of vague generic flaw that he has you know he's not a playoff performer he you know doesn't have the the mental fortitude to show up for big games or whatever it is and I think really if you look at his his playoff stat series by series you can see um, you know it's a combination of a bunch of different factors you know we've had series where he's a little banged up you know you have series where it just happens to be uh, a really bad matchup you have series where um, you know everybody else on the team is is struggling as well and that makes his job harder you have series where yeah, he, you know, he probably did, uh, you know, feel the moment a little bit or maybe miss some shots that he normally makes. But you also have series where he's played really well. He has, um, you know, it has not been uh, a consistent one to one trend. You know, he has had some playoff series where he's played really well, potentially even better than he did during the regular season. So um, I, I thought it was it was an interesting way to sort of, of highlight this trend that, uh, yeah, it is real. Uh, it is a big thing, but it's not as specific as he's always bad in the playoffs. It's just, you know, every player has this sort of distribution of good games and bad games. And his distribution is just a little bit shifted to the left when we get to the playoffs. Right. And I guess since we're addressing, he's hitting it less often. But in this series against the Bucks, he's been sublime. He's been very, very good. Looking at this series and then thinking back to maybe a wizard series that he wasn't very good in in 2015. Is there any stark contrast? And I know you didn't want to get into very specific things, but is there something that doesn't play armchair psychologist and guesstimate at his mental fortitude? Is there some sort of gamesmanship that you notice a difference in from a good Kyle Lowry series and a bad Kyle Lowry series? I mean, I really hesitate to ascribe it to mental factors because I think it's the hardest thing to measure. And um, it's, I don't know, it just, um, it's its too vague. There's too many, uh, you know, there's too many sort of, of weird variables in there um, that are sort of harder to control. I think the thing that's most obvious to me is how much better he has become as a three-point shooter. 
And um, it's easy to forget how much his game has sort of evolved in these seven years he's been in Toronto. Um, I just pulled up his basketball reference page. So, like, if you look at his first three years in Toronto, um, he shot about 36% on three-pointers with about five and a half attempts per game. And if you look at his next three seasons, uh, so not this year, but last year uh, and, and the three before that, He's shooting about 38% with a, about six and a half attempts per game. Um, and so obviously his three-point percentage was down quite a bit this year, but the attempts were still high. But I think he's just a different player than he was earlier in his career. Um, and so, uh, you know, he, he early, you know, early on in this run with, with DeMar DeRozan, uh, He's his. I guess. I guess his skill set has evolved in a way that makes him uh, more ideal as a complementary scorer. So as his athleticism has declined a little bit, uh, he's become a much more comfortable and confident three-point shooter. So you you have the variable of of Leonard uh, sort of being a, a better and more efficient pick and roll and isolation scorer than DeRozan was, and sort of drawing more um, defensive attention that way. And then Lowry's sort of better suited to leverage that as well. So, uh, you know, where the Raptors might have sort of always been uh, better off with him kind of being the second fiddle to DeRozan, uh, they have a better first fiddle now, and and Lowry's skill-wise is in a better place to take advantage of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. 100% agree with that. And so we'll move on from Lowry now, and we'll go on to Kawhi Leonard. Your piece you penned, I think it was 2016, the next level of managing NBA player, player minutes. So, being that this is a Raptors podcast, and Kawhi Leonard has been on the Raptors this year, and the Raptors' conversation has been entrenched in this long, long conversation about load management, what is your opinion on how the Raptors handled Kawhi's rest, thinking back to that piece you wrote about managing NBA player minutes? Um, so, the, the, the idea of that piece is that the... Um, the the idea of that piece was the you know uh, sort of talking about the Spurs specifically and their um, you know it's sort of become commonplace now a lot of teams have borrowed this strategy but you know how they worked on on reducing the the load on their star players um, and one of the things that w- was sort of an interesting uh, effect of that was as their um, you know as their their best players as the Spurs best players were aging, you know, obviously Kawhi was, was sort of on another generational track being younger, but, you know, as Tim Duncan and and Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker were aging, in addition to uh, reducing minutes to kind of save their bodies and keep them fresh, they were also, you know, on a per possession basis, a little bit less effective than they had been when they were in their primes. And so the minutes when they were on the floor uh, were less of an advantage or less of a margin for the Spurs. And, you know, as hard as it is to find, um, you know, star players, uh, you know, it can be hard to find, you know, a a good sixth, seventh or eighth man. Uh, But the Spurs have always been really good at that. They've always made sure that they have positive players coming off their bench. And so, you know, fewer minutes for their stars means more minutes for, you know, guys six, seven, eight, nine off the bench. Because the Spurs had really positive players there, uh, they were giving more minutes to those 
guys, and they often ended up with this big bench advantage because those players were so much better than other teams, six, seven, eight, nine guys. So it was a combination of just sort of the design of the roster and then how they they leveraged it to get value out of it. So in terms of Kawhi and the Raptors, I think that's how the Raptors envisioned uh, their team this regular season. I think obviously – um, you know, the emergence of Pascal Siakam sort of made it much easier to, to, to go with that. Um, but they were really careful managing his minutes, keeping the load small, uh, you know, holding him out of games for rest and load, load management throughout the season. And I think it worked really well at where it has broken down a little bit in the playoffs is, you know, they don't have uh, OG and Nunnaby. Uh The trade for Marcus Saul, you know, while while they they probably made the right bet in that his uh, you know his skills raised their ceiling slightly, I think by essentially making a, a two for one swap there, you know they they got Gasol but they sent out Valanciunas and and Delon Wright, um, you know so that cut their depth a little bit because they lost another sort of capable. Uh, you know, bench player there. So that shortened things up a little bit. Anunoby being out and then their bench players just just struggling. I think that advantage has just not manifested in the way that they were maybe hoping in the playoffs. Right. And so Kawhi Leonard, obviously, he did save a lot of his energy during the regular season. Mm-hmm. And there was a small subsect of Raptors fandom that was upset with the idea of load management there are groups around the league, people that don't like it. They want the players to play. I'm of the mind that rest rest is good, and I like the players saving their bodies, that type of thing. What's your opinion on load management now and how it might look five years from now? Uh I think uh, I think if anything, we're going to see patterns sort of get more extreme. Um, I think. Uh, I I understand the I understand both sides of the argument and I think it ultimately comes down to what you value and I think um I think for what a team's goals are you just you cannot expect them to do anything other than you know the, these these load management plans I think the the incentives for a team are not to put the best product on the floor every single night the the best in, or you know the incentives at the team level are driven towards competing for championships and um you know that that uh you know while there might be some some sort of like minor uh, uh revenue loss by you know having Kawhi Leonard out for a home game or something like that you know maybe they they are selling fewer tickets and selling fewer hot dogs in the arena the the difference between you know, the difference for Toronto in terms of revenue between, you know, last how last year's playoffs ended and if they finish this year, you know, with a title or, you know, pushing the Warriors to, to six or seven games and, and really, you know, uh, sort of making them sweat and, and getting beat at the end, that I think pays off so much more in revenue in terms of national attention, you know, drawing in national fans, more exposure for the team. Uh, and I'm sure that drives, um, you know, advent advantageous sponsorship arrangements and things like that. And so, you know, at the team level, the the incentives are tilted towards the big picture and not the game to game. And I know for fans, it kind of stinks because when you're buying a ticket, your incentives are just on, you know, that game, that game, you know, when you 
take your kids to go see a game on a Thursday night, you know, it doesn't really matter to you if they're going to win the championship or not. You want to have a good time that evening. And, you know, it might stink to, to, you know, watch, uh, Malachi Richardson go out there and take 20 shots or whatever it is. But, um, you know, I, I don't think there's any way to sort of resolve that perfectly. I think that tension is always going to be there. Um, and, and while it's frustrating, I just, I, I don't think it's fair to make teams, uh, de-incentivize the big picture and, and, you know, put the best players on the floor every night to the detriment of their long-term hopes. And, you know, like even for a team that's not necessarily competing for a championship, uh, the incentive is, is still there to take care of their best players so that they're there next year, you know, and that their careers are long and healthy and productive. Um, and even if it's somebody who's not going to be on the team long-term, you know, so that they still have value as a, as a trade asset or, or something like that. You know, uh, I don't think players getting hurt or, worn down or, or sort of, uh, broken down with overuse. I don't think that benefits anyone. Um, so yeah, I, I think that tension's always going to be there. I don't think there's any way to sort of resolve it, but if anything, I think we're going to see more, uh, I think we're going to see teams be more and more judicious with, uh, with how they use players and how often they use players. Yeah. I think most of the change and the compromise will come on the part of the fans who will just kind of grow accustomed to it. Yeah. Because they feel invested in the team's greater goal of a championship or success. So moving on from Raptor-centric stuff, I think it was, I remember Kirk Goldsberry, he was an author of it, but Bo Gusters, hmm. you wrote an article about that paper and the research they did on that. Do you mind giving us the cliff notes of it? And then I'm going to ask some questions based off of that. Um, so, uh, this was a paper that was presented, uh, at the Sloan conference. Um, and I want to make sure I'm talking about the right paper because it's been a couple iterations, but this is the one I believe where they have, um, the, the authors had developed sort of an iPad app and, um, the, uh, the app took real time tracking data and, uh, made, uh, estimations based on the players that were on the floor, their specific uh, offensive and defensive tendencies on both sides, um, the uh, you know game situation stuff, how much time was left on the clock, how many fouls people had, how many minutes they'd played, sort of expected exhaustion. Pretty much every factor that you could uh, you, you would sort of want included was was baked into this calculation. Uh, and so what a coach could do on the sideline was they could draw a play on the iPad app, and the app would return an expected. Uh, point value for that play that they had drawn. And so, you know, if it wasn't high enough, the coach can erase it and start over and draw another play until they sort of come up with, um, you know, what seems like the, the best way to, you know, attack and out of timeout situation or something like that. Um, so, you know, coaches probably have a lot of that, that information in their heads anyway, and they're making those sorts of calculations, uh, you know, by gut and the best coaches are, you know, uh, have pretty great guts and, <laughs> um, you know, they, they're making the right call more often than not just based on on their sort of innate understanding of, of the situation but having this this uh, this kind of system just gives a little bit more information it quantifies it in a way that maybe is a little bit useful um, and then the, the application that was most interesting to me was if you sort of take this system down the road uh, you know eventually the the um, 
eventually I would imagine you could have the, the program instead of the coach inputting the plays and the, the system grading it out, you could have the system just spit out the, the best play, you know, the play that has the most, uh, um, you know, the, the most expected value. And then once that part of the system's built, then shouldn't be too, uh, too far of a stretch to have, uh, you know, a, a comparable system that comes up with the best defensive strategy to defend the optimal play. Um, and then from that point, it's like, well, then maybe we don't even, we don't even need coaches for strategy stuff. You know, we can have algorithms that sort of measure out the ideal way to, to attack or defend in all these different sort of situations and game scenarios. I like that you pointed out that a lot of coaches, they go with their gut feeling because there is, in the back of your mind, your head is, or your brain is making a lot of calculated yeah. risks, going through a lot of scenarios itself. You're just yeah. not putting a voice to them. Uh-huh. How much value do you think can be derived from those algorithms? And do you think that provided that they were really, really good and they were applicable and they worked, which would be incredible, and already the premise that the app has already made is incredible to be this far anyway. But do you think that players would be receptive to an algorithm spitting out plays for them to run? I mean, I think it's all in delivery and application. Like, obviously, like one of the the most obvious issues with the program as it was, as it was presented in that paper is, you know, uh, a coach calls a timeout, you know, in the fourth quarter to try and design a play, they might only have, you know, two minutes of time to, you know, to try and draw up these plays on the, on the app and get a, you know, get a return. And then, you know, no, that's not good enough. I'm going to draw it again. So it's not like they have infinite time to sort of, uh, you know, milk all of the value out of this, out of this algorithm. You know, they have what the, what the, game structure allows you know the timeout that that the game structure allows i think um i don't i mean as far as like what players are are going to accept uh i think players want to play basketball and i think they will adapt to all sorts of things i mean um like when you think about how far um you know how far the the management of, of a player's lifestyle has come and and I don't mean to imply that it's all directed by the team you know it's it's things that you know agents are coach coaxing them into and trainers and things that the the players want to do themselves because they want to be better but you think about you know the 60s and 70s you know where you might have guys you know smoking cigarettes in the locker room after a game or you know Kevin McHale and and Larry Bird drinking beer after a game to you know the kind of nutrition routines that players go through now um, and the kind of um you know, the kind of, of biometric, you know, testing and, and tracking that teams are doing in practice and things of that nature. And, you know, like every piece of this evolution, I think you'll have early adopters who are eager for every edge. Uh, you will have people who sort of go along with it and you'll have, uh, you know, people on the end who, um, you know, complain and, and moan either because they don't understand it or, you know, they have some other sort of resistance to it, but it, it just keeps moving. And, you know, eventually, uh, you know, the people who are resistant become the reluctant adopters and the reluctant adopters become the, you know, enthusiastic adopters. And, um, you know, I think all of these things just sort of move along. And, um, you know, another uh, underrated aspect is, you know, players, 
don't have a ton of choice on these kinds of team things. Uh, I mean, some of these things are collective bargained, but you know, if, if a team, uh, if a general manager and a coach decide they're going to use a computer algorithm to design a play, um, you know, the, the players, I don't think really have a recourse to protest. And, you know, if the, the algorithm designs a play that results in a missed shot, uh, the players, you know, might complain afterwards, but that happens even when coaches draw up a play and somebody is in the locker room afterwards, you know, throwing shade because they didn't get the last shot or because the, you know, they didn't have a chance to be on the floor for the final possession or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of this stuff just, applies to everything it applies to technology and human coaches so i guess following the the brainwave of computer learning these types of things technology going forward in basketball mm-hmm. seeing how the nba 2k league has progressed and the growing culture of enjoying video games as a viewing rather than a participant mm-hmm. do you think we're moving closer to an artificial league that is run by code and simulation so I, I, I posed that question. I had the column. Uh, I wrote a column about this just because I was curious about the idea of it. And I don't, I don't necessarily know, but the idea was, you know, from taking from this, this Boscuster system and, and um, you know, a bunch of other, uh, you know, a bunch of other sorts, sorts of machine learning algorithms and, and things that are working on tracking data. It seems like we're getting closer and closer to being able to, um, model the the inherent complexity of a basketball game. And, um, you know, we're also seeing enormous growth in, in video graphics and CGI stuff in movies. So it doesn't seem like a stretch to imagine that, um, you know, at some point in the in the future, in the not too distant future, um, technology will would be able to create a visual environment that was essentially indistinguishable from reality. And so, if we have those two pieces, you know, if we can create a simulated basketball game that looks real, completely real, and uh, has all of the complexity of an actual basketball game, then we, we sort of have both halves and we could create, uh, you know, a, a simulated basketball environment that could compete with reality. Uh, and I think there's really interesting um, – I think there's really interesting – um, implications, like when you think about, uh, player health, you know, would, would then not be a concern unless that was something they, you know, it would be kind of cruel, but if we're going to create a a simulated environment, you know, where we want to factor in players getting hurt and bodies breaking down, but, um, you know, you wouldn't have to deal with so many other problems. You wouldn't have to deal with travel. Uh, you know, you wouldn't have to deal with, with travel, both the effect of the players and the associated costs. I mean, you think about, um, potentially how much cheaper it might be. Obviously this technology would be complicated, but how much cheaper it would be in the end run to do this as opposed to, um, you know, managing 30 arenas with, you know, 30 arena staffs and, and, uh, you know, all, all of the pieces that go into it. Obviously there's some, some horrifying ramifications as well. The idea that, you know, humans are, are less and less important and useful. And essentially we could, you know, simulate, uh, Sports, which is is one of these these entertainment places that seems like it's it's um, has been held out for humans, but yeah, I, I feel like it's something that is is uh, is going to be more and more realistic, more and more plausible, and uh, you know, it's it's something that the league will have to sort of reconcile at some point. 
My first question, hearing all of that, is I, I do think about like League of Legends tournaments, mm -hmm. things like that. There's tons of people packed in the stadium, but there still is the human interaction. The medium for that is the game console, but there's still you know, a, a person operating it, using the medium. In basketball, it's the court, it's the ball, that's the medium, and then everybody rotates around that playing mm -hmm. the way that they play. Same goes for the, the video game, and there's a reactionary thing. And the reaction is based on how humans interpret what they're seeing and react to it. Mm -hmm. If it's just simulation, does moving away from humans interacting with the medium as participants and simply only watching it, does that completely change the fabric of it? Or do you actually think that we might, you know, in our heads say, this is entertainment, this is what we came to see, if there's not human investment into it? I think that's a psychological barrier that would have to be overcome. Was you know, I think um, you know, from a from a functional point of view, there's no there's no real uh, there's no real difference for a viewer between watching um, you know uh, an e league um, you know uh, NBA live game or NBA two K game uh, that is totally simulated versus one that is um, you know human players uh, you know controlling the avatars on the screen you know for a viewer the only difference is that you have you know that one of them uh is controlled by humans and so it's it's a um you know it's it's a totally it's a mental construct that separates those two things and so i think that would be a, a challenge for people um you know you already i think you have a lot of people who are like why would i want to watch two people play a video game of basketball when i could watch an actual basketball game but we're already seeing that uh, that barrier is breaking down there's more and more people who are comfortable just watching you know an nba 2k game with this you know the the nba's 2k league and um i think eventually it, it wouldn't take too much to break down that the other construct of you know instead of knowing that there's five humans somewhere controlling those players and talking on headsets um and me being able to hear them talk i'm just gonna you know i'm just gonna watch it and and i don't know who's controlling it i i wonder I'm not trying to be an antagonist in this, but no, I wonder, no, no. dating back to the Coliseum and just how entertainment and sport and the physical part of it has mm -hmm. been attached to it. And then eventually we're starting to look at like 2K, it's not physical, but it's the skill that's attached to it. Yeah. If you take that facet out of it, it's tough for me to imagine that people would be able to identify with it. But I totally, I, I understand you saying like, as a viewer, it's completely the same. You're watching the same product. It's just nobody's interacting with it the same way. But they also yeah. do, they, they have like the team cams. They have like specific cams so you can see the player's reaction. You can see how they're working, all that type of things. It's just, I, I don't even know if I have a question post for you. That's just, it's very, very interesting for me. Yeah, I think the NBA 2K League is sort of a bleeding together of these two things because so again, I don't I don't watch it and it's it's still kind of a a foreign environment for me or a foreign world for me, but my understanding is that if you're watching that NBA 2K League, you're not invested in the computer uh you're not invested necessarily in the, in the outcome of the computer game. You're invested in the outcome of the five humans 
uh, on each side and the game is just sort of the mediums, you know? So if you're watching, uh, I don't know if I'm, I'm capturing it in the right words, but like if you're watching an NBA 2K league game, you're watching uh, a competition between two sets of five humans playing a game. You're not watching for the basketball necessarily, if that makes sense. Um, you know, the basketball might be an interesting medium, but that's that's not the the game. But I think it's it's giving people an experience where they're watching, um, you know, computer avatars essentially play the game. And I think it all just sort of erodes that psychological barrier. You're right. I think people are watching now because it's a contest of human skill, but the, the manifestation of the human skill is computer avatars, you know, existing in this fictional environment. And as people get more and more comfortable and more and more familiar with that, I think it's the, the, it'll be easier to sort of, uh, you know, if somebody wanted to, to slowly remove the human element until it's, you know, it's, it's not there anymore. Yeah, that's believable. For the longest time, it has, like you said, a contest of human skill. But the way that entertainment is changing and growing, it could just be that we're not worried about what produces it. We're just worried about the end game and yeah. what what it looks like at the end. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's uh, as good a place to, to step off of it as, as any. Thank you so yeah. much for coming on, man. This has been great. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, great conversation. Happy to come on again if you, uh, if you ever need somebody. Yeah, uh, feel free to shout out wherever you're doing your writing, obviously fan-sided, but your Twitter, things like that, where people can follow you. Uh, yeah, you can find uh, my stuff on fansided.com slash NBA. That's the home of the step back and nylon calculus. Um, and you can find me uh, on Twitter at Hickory High. Perfect. Ian, thank you so much for coming on. And to all the listeners, thank you for listening and have a blessed day. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone.